Titus, our theme for this book is from bad to good. And we'll spend a good amount of time breaking this book down chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from bad to good. It gives all of us hope. Chapter one, which we really haven't even gotten into yet, we're still in the introduction, deals with the importance of having good leaders. Chapter two is going to deal with the importance of having good teaching or good doctrine. And that was for the church at Crete. And that is also for Strong Tower Bible Church. And then in chapter three of Titus, the emphasis is on good works, uh, serving your king because he's worthy. Um, But today we still find ourselves in the first three verses of the first chapter of Titus. So let me read those verses to you. And we'll go as far as we can today in respect to the time. But it says, Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. Can you pray for your preacher? Which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Well, the first week we looked at meeting Titus, and I did my best to introduce you to Titus. Then we took time to meet Paul, and I introduced you to the man who said that he was first a slave, and then he was an apostle. So today, the first message of possibly two or three, I want you to meet someone else. You've met Titus. You've met Paul in this introduction. But I now want you to meet God. I want you to meet God based on what we see of him in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because there is no one like him. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? There is no one like him. So let's pray. Father, would you help me preach your word, which has so many lofty concepts and ideals? Would you help me? Would you make it plain to me so I can make it plain to your people? While we keep in mind that no sermon can define you, No book can define you. The Bible doesn't even tell us everything about you. But what it does reveal, would you help us to understand it for this moment through the Holy Spirit who is our teacher? So, Lord, do what you do, and that's glorify yourself. For you are the king and you are worthy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Hallelujah. Amen. It was about 29 years ago when Michael Jordan visited the garden in Boston and played a playoff game against the Boston Celtics with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and all those guys on that team. Michael had broken his foot earlier that season and had sat out much of the season and had come back just in time 
to help his young team, the Chicago Bulls, in the playoffs. And in this game, this man in the Boston Garden on the parquet wood floor put up 63 points in a double overtime losing effort. People don't even talk about the fact that the Bulls lost that game. They talk about how Michael Jordan played in that game. And although Jordan just turned 50 not long ago, people are still reminiscing about his highlights. And this is one of his greatest moments to the point where another great who played the game, who played in that particular game, Larry Bird. Larry Bird said of Michael Jordan, he said it was as if God decided to play basketball that day. What a compliment. We understand that's not a heretical statement. We understand what he's saying because what Larry Bird was saying is that Michael Jordan transcended the game of basketball. He transcended even amongst the greats that he played with because he was on an entirely different level than anyone else. And that's what the word transcend means. It means that you are on another level. And there is nothing like what you've just seen or experienced. Well, if Michael Jordan was so great, imagine the greatness of the one who made him and gave him the ability to play like that. Imagine the one who made the heavens and the earth simply by speaking the word imagine the one when people talk about they couldn't contain jordan that day well think about the one where the highest heavens cannot contain his glory so we don't want to get it twisted we give honor to men and women to whom honor is due but we give greater honor all worship all praise to the one who sits high and yet he looks low When we consider the heavens and the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? Even in our greatest glory, we are like the flowers of the field and we fade away. But the glory of the Lord endures forever. So God is unlike or excuse me, God is unlike anyone or anything we can ever fathom. He is utterly transcendent and he is on an entirely different level. The limited knowledge we have of a limitless God is based on what he chooses to reveal about himself. So what we know about God is based on what he chooses to reveal. And he reveals through general revelation and through special revelation. He reveals himself generally through creation. So when we look at creation, we see beyond an intelligent designer, we see Elohim. But if we don't want to acknowledge God and say in our hearts that there is no God acting like a fool, Romans 1 suppressing the truth that we know to be true, that there's no way you can get this kind of universe, this kind of order, this kind of specificity from chance. No, God created And as it says in the book of Hebrews, you thought the temple was something beautiful to behold that Solomon built. But Jesus said, there's one standing here that's greater than the glory of Solomon and that temple. The one who builds is greater than what he built. 
And so we look at this world and it is so beautiful, but we worship the one who made it and who created it, who spoke it into existence. So generally, we know that there is a God by looking at creation. But specifically or through special revelation, we know that God exists because he tells us through the prophets. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two says that there was a time when God spoke through the prophets. So the prophets were the mouthpieces of God who revealed an invisible God to the world. And they would speak, thus saith the Lord, thus revealing God in a special way through the gift of prophecy. But the Bible says there was a time God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Now, words communicate meaning and what we're thinking. And so the Bible says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when we beheld the glory of Jesus, we saw what was on the mind of God. And as Jesus taught the things that the father revealed to him, we were understanding more and more about God. And as we looked at the son, we saw the father. So the Lord reveals himself to mankind through the prophets. And thank God their words were recorded in written form. So we have the written word, but above all, we have the living eternal word, Jesus, that reveals God to us. So if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God is and what's on God's mind, we read God's word. So in Titus 1.3, it says that God manifests his word through preaching. So he manifests himself through his word through preaching, which is why you have to pray for your preachers and you can't sit under any and every preacher because they may get this word wrong, which means they'll give us the wrong interpretation of who God is. Now, we all need grace because this word is without error, but every preacher, including myself, is full of error. So the best thing we can do is say what the book says and get out of the way and not contribute too many of our opinions and our thoughts, especially when the Bible is silent or strangely mysterious. And when we talk about God... The Bible says you couldn't even contain, if it were possible, at the close of the book of John, all of the works that Jesus did. He said the world could not even contain the books because he's just so glorious and majestic in his power. So if the world can't hold the library to explain Jesus, thank you for 66 books. Thank you for preachers who have the ability from God to preach, for teachers to understand. But, oh, my, we're still dust. We're still clay. And we'll never get it. But hopefully today we can get a piece of who he is. So for those of you who know him, may you be refreshed in your knowledge of him and say praise God for his power. For those of you who don't know him, I pray that you would meet him today before it's eternally too late you want to meet him now as savior before you die and meet him as judge you don't want that to happen so within the next few weeks lord willing i just want to show you a few things about god from the first three verses of titus chapter one so when we meet him The first thing I want you to see, and we'll probably be on this one today, even though volumes upon volumes upon volumes have been written about this, and man still doesn't have a handle on this, 
And that is, number one, the God we meet today, he elects. He elects. But then secondly, from this passage, he cannot lie. But then thirdly, he is eternal. And then fourthly, he saves. Is anybody glad that he saves? Oh, I'm so glad he saves. And so just from these verses, let's just see with the help of the Holy Spirit how this God elects. He cannot lie. He is eternal and he saves. So today, let's just jump into he elects. And some of us come from churches where that's a cuss word. But I'm here to tell you it's a biblical word. And I'll show you that in a moment. Titus chapter 1 verse 1 says, Paul, a bond servant or slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. Elect. So to elect, it means to choose. That is to exercise one's will. When you vote for president or when you vote for local uh, politicians, you are electing them. You are making a choice. You are exercising your will. But in reference to God, election is based on his sovereign will. So stay with me. Election with God is based on his sovereign will. Man has human will, whereas God alone has sovereign will. Now, I find that this doctrine many times offends me because I want my will to be on the level of God's sovereign will. Deep down, I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to be the sovereign. But there's only one sovereign in the universe, and beside him there is no other. Christ is next to him, not Chris. (laughs) So I have to repent, just as Job did. In sackcloth and ashes, when God doesn't make sense to me, because I think I know what ought to be right, so here is what is created, questioning the creator, saying, why did you do this, and why did you make me so? How dare we do that? Oh, my. So we're talking about his sovereign will. Sovereign will means that God elects and chooses from eternity as he so pleases. And he does so for his own glory and purposes and that without explanation. In other words, he doesn't owe us an explanation for why he does what he does. And just as Melody talked about parenting, This is one of those ones when I became a parent, I couldn't wait to use. And this was the one, dad, why can't I know that? Or dad, why can't I go? Because I, and there it is. Because in my home, I've got sovereign power. My kids have human will, but their will does not measure over Darina and Chris's will. And so there are times where we just have to tell them, It's because we said so. And that doesn't always reconcile with their minds that needs to know everything and for it to add up. But it don't have to add up because you're not the mom and you're not the dad. Oh, I couldn't wait to become a parent to use that one. And I know Krista and Dante and Chase and Karis, they can't wait to use it either. And God uses that thing with us, man. 
I can barely understand how electricity works and how these lights up here, which are presently roasting a brother, how they work. But yet I want to question the God of the universe for why he chooses and elects and does certain things. He doesn't owe me an explanation. When I read the Bible, he does things for his own glory and for his own purpose. He's high on glorifying himself, my God. So he elects. We see in scripture that he elected Jesus. Now, we don't have a problem with that. We thank God that he elected or chose Jesus. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. You got to be in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So he elected Jesus, and he is so precious. He is the cornerstone. He elected Christ to save us. But he also elected Israel, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4, for Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. I have called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Oh, we can't go too deep off into that. But remember, Jacob, he had his name changed from Jacob or heel snatcher, sneaky, to Israel, he who prevails with God. So through all of his children, those 12 sons, you would have the nation of Israel or the nation of Israel. And so when you look at the fact that God chose Jacob, he did not choose his twin brother Esau to be the father of this particular nation through whom the Messiah would come. And some would say, wow, that doesn't make sense. When the Bible says, God says, Jacob, have I loved Esau have I hated. That doesn't reconcile with our minds and with our hearts, but the Bible says it, and it's so that God had a plan. And and rather than saying, Wow, in the world would you hate Jacob or Esau? A greater question, if we really want to dig deeper, is to ask, Why would you love that tricky guy named Jacob? And why would you love a tricky person like me? Election. God elected the angels, 1 Timothy 5, 21. I charge you before God and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Jesus elected the 12. John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? Oh, we don't have time to jump off into that one. So did Judas become a devil or was he a chosen devil? Oh my. Again, volumes have been written on these things. But then I love this one from John 15, 16, when Jesus said to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You see, this is when it feels good to be chosen. 
You know, when I was growing up and we would play sports, guys would pick who they would want. They would elect. They would choose who they would want on their team. And before I grew up and got a little size on myself, I was always one of the last people chosen. And it would be me and some other guy. And be like, man. And so sometimes I was chosen to make the teams even. You know, I just didn't have a lot to contribute. But it always felt good to be chosen. And election, it can get controversial when we go to this next point, And that is God elected believers. Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Justification means he declares righteous. Based on the work of Jesus, he declares sinful people righteous. And those ones he declares righteous or he justifies are those whom he has elected and chosen. Well, in election, God sovereignly and lovingly elects sinners. He elects them to be saved based on nothing in those chosen, whether good or bad but solely upon his own will and for his own eternal purpose and glory. So some of us come from a background that says through God's foreknowledge and before the world began, he interviewed every human that he was to create, presented what the gospel message would be to them. And those who accept it would become Christians. Those who reject it would go to hell. Some of us say through his foreknowledge or he knew who would reject and who would accept and all of that. I take it a step further and say he chooses who will accept and who will reject. And it has nothing to do with the person, whether they do anything good or bad. So back to Jacob and Esau, when Paul brings this point up to his people and he says before the twins did anything good or bad, while they were still in mama's womb, God decided that Jacob would carry the blessing and not Esau. So now, again, I I like election as long as election agrees with me. When election doesn't agree with me, then I have a problem with election. Because what I'm quietly saying again is I want to be God. And I I want to be on a level where I know what he's doing and, and, and all of this stuff. Wait a minute now, hold on. I like election as long as I agree with election. But when I don't agree with election, that is... The point that reminds me that I am not God. He is. I am created. He is the creator. And I need to humble myself and trust him. Because if it was based on good or bad, none of us would be chosen. Because we're all bad. But from the group of bad, he chooses some for himself. God chose a way for sinners to be forgiven and made right with him before mankind was ever created or had ever sinned. In eternity past, God chose some people to choose him. Wow. All right, Pastor, I got a question then. If God chooses who will be saved, what happens to human will? Nothing. Being made in God's image means that man, like God, has the ability to choose. We can choose. We've been made in the image of the one who has sovereign will. We have human will. We can choose. But unlike God, man does not have the ability to be sovereign in his selections. 
That's where the rubber meets the road. I'm not sovereign. I don't have all knowledge. And I'm surely not coming from a perfect nature and character like God. He alone has the right to be sovereign. Well, okay, pastor, I have another question. Well, if God chooses who will be saved, why do the elect need to have faith? Because that's what it says in Titus 1, the faith of God's elect. Well, if he elects them, why do they have to have faith? Well, the elect need to have faith because God has ordained that the means by which the elect will become believers is by hearing the gospel and by believing the gospel. So God not only decides the who, God decides the how. And the how is hearing and believing the good news that God loves us, gave Jesus to save us from our sin. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And whoever believes on him becomes sons and daughters of God. And so I have to believe the gospel. You see, the elect, we are saved by faith in the gospel. And the elect are to live by faith in the gospel. Romans 1.17, it says, For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, Habakkuk 2.4, he was quoting, the just or those who've been declared righteous shall live by faith. We're saved by faith. But even that faith, it doesn't even originate with us. First Timothy chapter one says that God pours out on us faith and grace. He gives me faith to put it back into him. Faith doesn't even originate with me. So I can't take credit for saying I know who you are. Just like when Peter said, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, you didn't figure that out. My father gave you that information. So none of us will get to heaven saying we were smart enough and we figured it out. That's how we got here. There'll be no boasting of the flesh in heaven. And any glory we do get for serving God, we'll take those crowns off and cast them at his feet. Because in heaven, it won't be about us, not by works, not even the work of belief. Shall no one boast. We are saved by grace. It causes me to look to Christ. Oh, yeah, this doctrine is tough because it offends that thing in us that wants to work and do right things. Oh, that's why I got four things about this doctrine as I close. Election will never make total sense to human beings. So just accept that. It is not going to make total sense to you. But that's why 1 Timothy 3.9 says we are to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. There are things about our faith that are mysterious and if you have a god that you know everything about him and you can define him perfectly through systematic theology i'm here to tell you that you don't have god you have a god that you made you reduce god to books and you reduced god to your understanding but if you have a god you can define he's not god when we get to heaven Jesus said, this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they might know you, the only true God, and me whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? According to Jesus, it is the knowledge of God. How long is eternity? Never ending. How long is the knowledge of God? Never ending. 
We will go throughout eternity. And if there is such a thing called day, we will learn something about God every day because we can never get to a place where we have come to a complete knowledge of who God is. He is inexhaustible. So how dare we in our fallen state try to create some kinds of theological uh, tenets that confine God to our perspectives. Yes, we should have systematic theology, but we should always leave room for God to be God. And there are aspects of our faith that are just mysterious. And that's why we're saved by faith, not by reason. Reason comes into our faith. A lot of things make sense for us. But there are some things that only God knows. And we step back and we submit to his sovereign will. I can't explain to you how his sovereign will and human will work together. But I can tell you about Acts chapter 27. When Paul is on his way into Rome, he's a prisoner. And the weather is horrible. And he tells everybody on the boat, he says, and and let me give you the scripture, Acts 27 verse 24. He says, God has chosen to save everybody on this ship. And there were over 200 people on the vessel. He said, God has said, everybody's going to live sovereign will. Then a few verses down in verse 31, Paul then says, but if you get off this boat, you're going to die. Human will. You have a choice. Sovereign will. Everyone will live. But if you get off this boat, you will die. How does it work together? I don't know. I just accept it and I preach it as is. You wrestle with it. And when you figure it out, call somebody to get his book of records. Call somebody. You're not going to figure it out. I'm okay with these two truths running parallel without ever contradicting one another. But if we got to lean anywhere, baby, I'm leaning on sovereign will more than I am on human will. So if this offends you, good. Number two, election is not a doctrine for unbelievers. When you share the gospel, you don't have to break down all this deep kind of stuff. Just tell them that God loves them. Don't let your poindexter friend come up to you and say, well, how do you know that they're one of the ones that God has chosen? Man, be quiet. Because technically, this doctrine is to encourage believers. It's to cause us to say, thank you for choosing me. But above all, I worship you because of your eternal power, goodness, and glory. So it's a doctrine that should cause us to be in awe of God as opposed to trying to make it make sense to unbelievers. Number three, since only God knows who the elect are, election should motivate us to share the gospel without fear and without manipulation. Why? Because it ain't up to me to save anybody. He's called me to plant seeds of the gospel Water seeds of the gospel. Who gives the increase? God does. So when I go in recognizing that God is sovereign, I have a responsibility to share the gospel so that people can hear and believe. I recognize it's not up to me. And that's why I don't give an invitation to just as I am every Sunday. That's good. It has its place. But you don't need an invitation to meet the Lord. You can meet him over lunch with somebody else in here who can share the gospel with you. You can pray at your bed. You don't have to pray up here because 
When you know he's chosen you and you recognize that today is the day of salvation. Oh, and you say, Lord, I don't harden my heart. I receive this grace. I receive this love. You don't need an invitation from a man or a woman. But it's good to give them and I'll give one today. And that'll, I hope, make you Baptists feel good. I'm going to give one. Because some of you reform folk, y'all never have seen an invitation. Like, what is that? An invitation. Some of you Baptist folk were ready to throw me under the bus. He doesn't give an invitation every Sunday. What is that? Strong Tower, you thought we were just diverse racially. Lord, have mercy. We are diverse theologically and ecclesiologically. And then finally, well, let me go back to this point. Since only God knows who the elect are, election should motivate us to share the gospel without fear and without manipulation because God is the one who saves. Acts 13, 48, I love this. The Bible says, and as many who had been appointed to eternal life believed. They were appointed and they believed. And so today when I extend an invitation for people to meet the Lord, if you've never met it before, and if you recognize, man, today is my appointment to meet him. You'll believe today and become a Christian. But if today is not your appointment, I pray that you will receive the invitation from Christ before it's eternally too late. And when you receive him, that just shows that he chose you. Pastor, you're about to give me a headache with that. Me too. That's why I'm closing this sermon. (laughs) Number four, election promotes sovereign will, but does not negate human will because God holds all men responsible for their own individual choices and actions. So if we were puppets, then a puppet is not responsible for his action. The one who controls the puppet is. But somehow God is able to be sovereign and choose, and yet man in human will chooses, and man is held responsible and accountable to God for when he breaks God's commandments. The books are going to be open, Revelation 20, and man will be judged according to what he's done that's recorded in the books. And so sovereign will does not negate human will and responsibility. Well, although I believe in God's sovereign will based on John 6:44, I am not a Calvinist. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. John 6:44, Jesus said, "No one can come to me unless the Father draws them." So again, you see God's sovereign will, he must draw people to Christ. No one can come to Christ on their own accord. So you can see aspects of Calvinism in that or hyper Calvinism. And although I believe in man's human will, based on John 7, 37, I am not an Arminian. An Arminian, these are people who believe in free will. And it comes from a dude back in the day named Arminius. He disagreed with where Calvin was. And so he saw and many Wesleyans and Baptists come from this camp of human will and free will and choice. I see that in scripture. John 7, 37. The same one who said no one can come to me unless the father draws him said in John 7, 37, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's what Jesus said. Whoever is thirsty, come on. That's an open invitation. So how do they reconcile? I don't know. I don't have time. To sit in my study, reading books and going through mental gymnastics 
trying to figure this stuff out when there's a single parent that needs somebody to come spend time with her and her child. Man, again, that studying has its place, but man, get out of the study and get into the world and touch people in Jesus' name. I guarantee you the people who need to hear about Jesus really could care less about what you believe about Calvinism and the tulip and total depravity and all that kind of stuff. Man, love somebody. And we'll talk about this stuff later. And we'll agree to disagree. And guess what? Like the old folks said, we'll understand it better. What? I'm going to close with that right there. That, that's it right there. All right. That's it. Oh, boy. Christy Mack. You come up here. As we go home, Strong Tower continues to go through transition. And transition's not a bad thing. Some of us resist change. We're afraid of change. But change many times shows that something is alive. Something is growing. People are growing. My administrative assistant, as I told you weeks ago, I don't know how many years, how many years were you, my AA? Five years. The best administrative assistant that I have ever had, that I've ever seen run this church, began getting a stirring in her soul to leave a very good place, maybe even a comfortable place, to launch out into something that she wasn't even really clear about. And that's to serve people in a different capacity. I try to talk her out of it three times. And she's like, Pastor, you know, when somebody heard from God and he don't give you all the details, he just give you the direction. I was give me more details. She's like, Pastor, all I got is direction. And I try to talk her out of it three times, but I saw in her spirit, this girl is stepping out on faith to do what God's called her to do. So, Christy, would you? Uh, give us a little bit more insight on how we can serve this lady who has served us for so long. Miss Tanya Franklin, come on up here, Christy. Amen. Oh! Oh, man, I love this lady right here. It's been an honor to serve with her. Um, Tanya's going to take a minute here to share a little bit about the residency program that she's going into. Ministerially, she's moving on, but she's still going to be part of our church family. So she'll be sitting probably right with me next Sunday over in our section. But uh, part of what I love about the body of Christ is we get to contend for one another. We get to stand in the gap for one another. And when one of us has a need, God will often raise up another one to meet that need. And Tanya's residency program is going to cost about $10,000. And next Sunday on March.